betrayal, misunderstanding, abandonment. These are things that most of us wouldn't wish on our worst enemies. Well, it was the lot of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It was all part of the bitter cup He asked His Father if it were possible to remove. But as He ended His prayer time with His Father in Gethsemane, He knew now what He had to do. And so the hour was finally at hand. He knew He had to suffer and He had to die for the sins of His people. And if the humiliation and suffering at the hands of sinners wasn't enough to add insult literally to injury, the way He would be handed over to sinners would be through the betrayal of a dear friend, one of His intimate inner circle. So as our Lord rises up from this intense prayer session in Gethsemane, He says these ominous words to His sleepy disciples. I'm going back in the text a little bit. Verse 45. Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And Matthew tells us that Judas arrived with a large crowd while Jesus was still speaking these words. So as we look at the text before us this morning, let's simply meditate upon and drink up this incredible truth before us, and it's simply this. In the midst of betrayal, misunderstanding, and complete abandonment, Jesus is completely in control. So three things we're going to look at. Our Lord suffered the pain of betrayal for us. Our Lord suffered the pain of misunderstanding for us. And our Lord suffered the pain of abandonment for you and for me. And He did this completely of His own will while He was totally in control of the situation. So let's take a look at the first one. Our Lord suffered the pain of betrayal. You can't help as we look at this section of Matthew's Gospel to notice that betrayal dominates the scene. It's so dominant that it's impossible to miss. Perhaps the psalmist in foretelling this very event explains the added agony that betrayal from, one of, from one's inner circle would feel to Jesus as He's suffering for us. Psalm 55, 12. If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it, says the psalmist. If a foe were raising himself up against me, I could hide from him. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship as we walked with the throng to the house of God. And it's interesting when we look at the text that Matthew identifies Judas as one of the twelve, but just in the very next sentence, he calls him what? The betrayer. Jesus before called him the betrayer. And now Matthew, writing years later, refers to Judas as the betrayer. And I think the part that really hurts here is when you see the heinous way that the betrayer signals the crowd to arrest Jesus. 
he uses a gesture that normally signifies intimacy, friendship, and love. He betrays his Savior, or his Lord, should be his Savior, with a kiss. Michael Card asks it this way in his song called Why? Why did it have to be a friend who chose to betray the Lord? Why did he use a kiss to show them? That's not what a kiss is for. Only a friend can betray a friend. A stranger has nothing to gain. And only a friend comes close enough to ever cause so much pain. It was customary in the early church for believers to greet one another with a holy kiss. The Apostle Paul tells us a number of times in his epistles to greet one another with a holy kiss. Yet Judas, think about this, turns this most holy, intimate, loving greeting into literally the most unholy kiss that has ever been given in the history of the human race. And as the betrayer comes with that insidious greetings, teacher, our Lord simply says in effect, just do what you came to do. Michael Wilkins shares this penetrating insight with us. Listen, I found this powerful. Judas manipulates friends and enemies to advance his goals. But within the deception, Jesus maintains control of his own destiny to reconcile friends and enemies to God and to each other. That's powerful. Judas thinks he's going to manipulate friends and enemies. And Jesus uses that manipulation to reconcile enemies to one another and to God. <laughs> Talk about an upside-down kingdom. Talk about power and weakness. Talk about the way of the cross being completely opposite of the way of the world. So one, of, one aspect of our Lord's passion was betrayal at the hands of a friend. But He also suffered the pain of constant misunderstanding, even from the closest of His followers. And sometimes I don't think we understand the impact of that. Unless you've been in that situation where you're constantly explaining yourself over and over and over again, and even the people that you trust and that you love have no clue, it seems, what in the world you're even talking about. Jesus was with them for three years, intimately pouring His life out into them. And yet here we have one of the biggest flubs from one of the, the chief disciples. Still. So our Lord suffered the pain of misunderstanding. That's the second thing I want you to see from this text. Look at verse 51 with me. Meantime, if someone could grab me a tissue, please, anyone. Napkin, tissue. Oh, perfect. Look at this. We need Caleb here because he would edit the sermon so that you wouldn't hear this part. <laughs> Look at me at verse 51 and 50 to 54. Then the men stepped forward seized Jesus and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. And then we'll just read verse 52. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. And then we'll examine that in a moment. 
But even as Jesus is feeling the agony of betrayal, he's confronted with yet another painful example of his disciples' complete thick-headed misunderstanding, listen, of his mission. Van Morrison wrote a song years ago. I know you didn't think Pastor would be quoting Van Morrison. But um, it's powerful. It, it, it expresses so well the pain of constantly being misunderstood. I'm only going to quote part of it. I recommend you, uh, you listen to the whole song someday. It's powerful. He says, I have to toe the line. I've got to make the most. Spent all the years going from pillar to post. Now I'm standing on the outside and I'm waiting in the rain. Tell me why. Must I always explain? Bared my soul to the crowd, but oh, what the cost. Most of them laughed out loud like nothing's been lost. There were hypocrites and parasites and people that dream. So tell me why. I must always explain. If there's anybody who knew that, it was our Lord. The very people He came to die for constantly were stumbling blocks. Constantly were pulling him back from his very mission that he came to do. And once again, Jesus has to reiterate the nature of his mission. The real reason he's come. And the way of those who would come after him. It's not the way of the sword. It's not the way of physical coercion. We know religions that do that. It's not ours, brothers and sisters. One of his inner circles decides to pull out a sword and fight a spiritual battle with carnal weapons. (laughs) And we know which disciple actually pulled out his sword and cut off the the, the servant of the high priest's ear because Luke tells us it was Peter. (laughs) And Matthew doesn't mention it, but our Lord right away takes the ear, puts it back on the servant's head, and he's fine. Think about it. Peter was now, now just to give one second to, for, to understand Peter a bit. Peter is witnessing one of his fellow apostles selling Jesus down the river. I don't know about you, but I would be emotional. I'd be very emotional. And he's watching these men laying their hands and seizing his master. And his emotions get the better of him. And he's not about this thing to let this thing go down without a fight. That's Peter. How many times has this happened to us? When we know the way of our Savior is willing submission to suffering, to cross-bearing, and to accepting injustice for Christ's sake and conscience sake, yet we find ourselves saying something like this. I can certainly speak for myself. I know I should not retaliate, but this just ain't right. There's just got to be some justice. Didn't you ever feel like that? I've told you before, that's why I watch Clint Eastwood movies. Somebody's going to get it in the end. And so what we do is we end up taking matters in our own hands. Craig Keemer puts it this way, and it was so convicting to me. We disciples are sometimes ready to fight for our cause, but rarely willing simply to be martyred for it without resistance. And once Jesus' disciples realized that martyrdom without resistance was the price of following Jesus, they fled. They finally got the message. 
And it caused them to do what? Run away. Whoa. Didn't sign up for this. Real quick, let's notice Jesus' immediate response to Peter's rash act. Look at verse 52. Put your sword back in its place, and he gives three reasons why Peter needs to do that. The first one is, he says this, For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Listen, that's just the profound truth. Haven't you seen enough Godfather mob movies to know that? Violence begets violence. When will it stop? It won't stop. You kill that guy, part of his family, he's going to come and retaliate and kill it, and it's just going to go back and forth until you get it in the end. It's a sad thing about those mob movies. These guys, the characters you kind of like, even though the rascals, in the end, they end up getting shot because they live that way and they die that way. So put it away. That's not the way of the kingdom. Now, I do want to say this. Sometimes this verse is, qu- uh, is quoted to support pacifism. But it's not referring, Jesus is not talking about the proper use of the sword by legitimate government powers. Nowhere does Jesus forbid his followers from being soldiers and properly yielding the sword when called upon to. But what he's forbidding here, listen, this is important to know this distinction. What he's forbidding here is the use of physical force to advance or promote his kingdom's purposes. It's not the job of the church and it's not the job of us as individual Christians to take personal vengeance or to fight fire with fire. The government is given the sword to punish evildoers in its proper place. Romans 13. As Jesus makes clear in verse 53, this is where he really starts preaching. He says, do you think I can't call on my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? <laughs> Jesus is saying, what are you thinking? Don't you know if that's the way we rolled, I could have the Father send 72,000 angels to absolutely decimate this place? We would rock it to the ground. We just got back from the Sight and Sound Theater and we got to see Samson, which is my favorite one, by the way. Um, I normally don't like them because, these stories because they always add so much stuff that's not biblical. But this time at the beginning, they mentioned, you know, we're going to take some creative liberties. You know, it's, it's based on a true story. So I feel like, okay, at least they're telling you what they're doing. And I paid attention to that pack. Well, there was this one, the reason why I'm telling you this, there's this one section, which was extra biblical. It was Samson's dad talking to Samson. But it's based on a biblical truth, and I'll show you. So Samson, he's telling Samson, the dad is, when you were born or before you were born, I saw an angel. And Samson goes, I wish I saw an angel. And Samson's dad says, I wish I didn't. It only takes a couple angels to wipe out cities. Angels are the holy servants of God that trust me, if you see when your face will be in the dirt. Because we look at the book of Daniel and it says he was like a dead man, Daniel. And the angel had to strengthen him to get him back up. And then he fell back down again. One angel. And Jesus is saying, I got 72, no problem. If we, if we, if we rolled that way. Put away your sword. Those who draw it will die by it. And it's not my Father's will to prevent my arrest. 
If it were, I certainly wouldn't need your help. And there's one other thing he says, and this is throughout this text. It just keeps coming out. Verse 54. But how then would the Scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Jesus obviously is marching to the beat of a different drummer. His Father and the Holy Spirit as they have spoken and continue to speak through the Holy Scriptures of the Old Testament. And Jesus says, if you prevented my arrest, how then would the Scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? And he makes it abundantly clear he's not an insurrectionist. He's not a political zealot. He says, look, all these times I taught in the temple courts. He goes, why are you coming with swords and clubs? You could have taken me at any point. I'm just teaching in the temple guards. I don't have a bunch of guards behind me with with swords why do you come with me with this then he says i'll tell you why you've come to me like this because the scriptures have to be fulfilled that this is the way it must be done listen peter's out of control the guards are nervous carrying swords the crowds are cautious on edge carrying clubs and yet jesus cool as a cucumber he's got this orchestrating the whole thing. Doug O'Donnell puts it so well. He says, Jesus resolves to go to the cross because He knows it is the will of God. He knows it is the will of God because He knows His Bible. And His Bible speaks of Him, the Messiah, and His sufferings as the climax of the script. Isn't that cool? Jesus knew. None of this Jesus Christ superstar stuff where Jesus is confused and doesn't know who he is. Jesus knew who he was from the beginning. And he knew exactly where he had to go. Even in the midst of betrayal, misunderstanding. And the last point, very brief. Our Lord suffered not only the pain of misunderstanding and betrayal, but he suffered the pain of abandonment text tells us then all the disciples deserted him and fled just as the scriptures by the way and jesus predicted they would do even though all of them said not us we'll die with you huh now he's alone he's left to face his destiny all alone And as he's experienced betrayal, misunderstanding, and abandonment, he is unwavering in his zeal for his Father's glory and his love for those he was about to go and give himself over to crucifixion for. Another commentator, Bruner, puts it this way, against this awful backdrop of infidelity, Jesus' fidelity looms high and lonely. And that is the point. Amid all human failure, there is one who is totally dependable. That was the big takeaway as I studied that this week and even before this week. The big takeaway is there really ultimately is only one hero in this world. And his name is Jesus. He's the only one that's totally dependable. He's the only one that's never sinned. He's the only one that's never failed. He's, in this picture, we get a picture here. The Apostle Paul preaches and teaches about total depravity. 
None is righteous. No, not one. It's illustrated for us here. Everyone. You have Greeks, or Romans, Gentiles. You have the Jews, religious leaders. You have Jesus' own disciples. They're all gone. They've all failed. They've all messed up. And his chief one is about to do an unthinkable thing and completely deny him three times. And yet here you have Jesus. And he is going to be faithful and he is going to drink the cup to its bitter dregs. Why? Because there's got to be some justice. But justice has to fall on him, my brothers and sisters. Because if it doesn't, it would fall on you and me. This isn't sentimental hogwash. Jesus literally was thinking of you, your name. In the future, he went to the cross knowing he had to bear your shame. He had to drink the cup that you deserved or you would have to drink it. That's why vengeance, trying for justice now, would not be good for us. Because be careful what you pray for because you just might get it. Jesus walked this lonely road so you wouldn't have to get it. So that God's justice would be satisfied. He would take, remember, um, he's forsaken and I'm forgiven. That's what this text is about. We'll end our time together in the Word before we go to commune together with the Lord's Supper with a few lines from Our Holy Jesus. I read one line, I think, last time, two times ago. And I'm going to read the ones I didn't read. Just let, let's meditate on this and then we'll pray. Ah, holy Jesus, how hast thou offended that we to judge thee have in hate pretended by foes derided, by thine own rejected, O most afflicted. Who was the guilty? Who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason, Jesus, hath undone thee. T'was I, Lord Jesus. It was I denied thee. I crucified thee. Lo, the shepherd for the sheep is offered. The slave has sinned and the son hath suffered. For our atonement, while we nothing heeded, God interceded. Praise be the name of the Lord Jesus that while we were running in the other direction, He took care of us. That's a shepherd worth giving our lives to and all of our trust. No matter how bitter your trial is, it's nothing like the cup that He drank to the dregs. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do love You. We acknowledge it was our sins that put you there. We acknowledge if you didn't walk that lonely road, we would never be a part of the fellowship of the saints and walk with joy with the Father. We could never, if we had a million lifetimes, we could never do enough to thank you. But from the heart, we do thank you. And we praise you. We pray that as we confess our sins and trust you anew, 
and partake of the bread and the cup. That you would continue to do your perfect work in us by your grace, Lord, your unmerited favor, and make us more into the people of the cross that we are called to be. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks.